welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of design and health. We love it when our listeners reach out to us. You can message me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U and on Instagram and threads at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Our guest today is Howard Belk. He is both the co-CEO and the chief creative officer of a leading global brand experience consultancy called Siegel and Gale. He claims it's one of the six best jobs on the planet. Howard's an entrepreneur and he helped a 50-year-old branding firm reestablish industry leadership by embracing its disruptor legacy. He arrived at the firm in 2004 and Howard and his colleagues have established Siegel and Gale as the simplicity company. They help untangle the mind-bending brand mashups that result from entrepreneurial adventures of the CEOs they love. Over his career, Howard has partnered with Fortune 500 clients to embrace the power of simplicity, purpose, experience, and design to transform and grow their companies. Here's my conversation with Howard Belk. Howard Belk, welcome to Design Lab. I'm thrilled to reconnect with you and have you on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be back here, Bon. It's good to see you. You look great, man. What have you been doing? How do you stay so healthy? <laughs> well, my listeners probably get bored of this, but I am a surfer. Ah. So I've I've actually surfed a lot this year in all these different places. I've been to surfed in Morocco, Please. Nicaragua, and Western Ireland. Let's jump into your roles at Siegel and Gale. You're the chief creative officer and the co-CEO. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Cool. Yeah. Two really good jobs. Yeah. I love that title of being a chief creative officer. So let's dive into both. And first of all, for those who don't know what Siegel and Gale is, describe your company and what do you do there on a day-to-day basis? Siegel and Gale is one of the world's leading, and, and I, really it is, brand strategy and experience companies. We have offices in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, London, Dubai, Shanghai, and an affiliate office in Tokyo. So, whoa. Yeah, in, interesting parts of the world. We work with most of the time large established organizations that are going through moments of transition, and we help them, you know, big picture, you could say, with relevance in a way. Mm. You know? So, we're a branding firm. So, we approach it from that perspective. What's the story? What's the unique story of each one of these companies? You know, how do they match up in a really smart way based on the strengths they have, you know, in their competitive set? What's the true story about them that helps the world understand what they do, how it's unique, and why it matters, you know, mm. and why they should care about it. And and then that that exercise helps them with obviously marketing, also with talent you know, attraction and, and also focusing of talent. It helps them engage with communities in productive ways, and it helps them really assert their relevance in the world. So mm. that's kind of what we do. It's a great company, several hundred people around the world, a mm. phenomenal set of talents and backgrounds. From obvi- We have designers and we have digital specialists and we have research people and strategists, mm. and namers, and a really interesting collection of talent, which yeah. makes it really fun. 
you must really have to get into the mental headspace of companies going through this transition. You almost have to be, you kind of almost have to act as a therapist, don't you? To help them come up with their identity sometimes. Yeah, you have to love them, Bond. So you you have to <laughs> you have to fall in love with them. And we we work with so many different kinds of organizations, you know, that do all kinds of different things in the world, you know. And so part of the job I think and I tell our people, you know, I encourage our people is find the thing you love about them, about their people, about what they do, the impact on the world because if you don't, if you harbor any disdain for them, that will become apparent and it's just it's going to wreck the whole thing and it's going to mm. going to take the joy out of it. So that's key, love. Love yeah. matters. And before we dive into some of your clients, you've had a long history with Siegel and Gale. You first visited them when you're in your early 20s, is that correct? Can you talk about that? That's one of my favorite stories and this story actually shows up in in a biography that's been written about our founder Alan Siegel, but this is my favorite story. You know, I ask people sometimes, guess what the first five words Alan Siegel ever said to me? And they were, who the hell are you? Just like that. <laughs> I was, you know, like 22, a really good friend of mine was a designer over there. And I was visiting him at night. We were actually doing a little freelance job on the side in the Siegel and Gale offices. And Alan came back after dinner about nine o'clock at night, finds me alone in a room. He's like, who the hell are you? <laughs> I stuttered at something, you know, and he's got, he harumphs and walks off and uh, I didn't see him again for 20 plus years. So that, that was pretty funny and, and enormously satisfying to be appointed CEO of that company. You know? Yeah. Amazing. And so are you trained as a designer? Do you go to design school? Because you're in this unique position of being in a C-suite with your background. Yeah, I did go to design school. I went to design school in Philadelphia and came to New York out of school and, and worked as a designer, but I always had a pretty entrepreneurial bent, Bon. So I, mm. I founded a company with somebody I was at school with. Oh, cool. In my 20s and was sort of off to the races. So then it was design and building and running a company. And then, you know, interestingly, back when we founded that company, we did a lot of annual report writing and design. Mm -hmm. And so that put us into direct contact with CEOs of companies, uh, interviewing them. And I found that fascinating and really paid attention, you know, so I mean, we worked with major companies, you know, like American Express and Texaco mm. and Neiman Marcus and Dow Jones and Pfizer and Honeywell and Nabisco and all these really, you know, sort of global Brands and this document was a very important, almost mm. personal document to their mm. CEOs. So it was like their report card and also their ambition. And mm. I found it fascinating. And it was like a you know tutorial in business. And that's really actually, you know, been helpful for me as as we then, you know, embarked on our own journey with our company. Mm. So that's fascinating. So you didn't study business in, in undergrad. You studied, were you, did you study graphic design or? Yeah, I studied graphic design. Yep. Okay. In a program at University of the Arts in Philadelphia, which at the yeah. time was, that was staffed by a number of really accomplished design educators that all had come out of Switzerland. So they were this ah. sort of Basel, Swiss design school, very philosophically driven. So I came uh -huh. out with that background, but then, you know, sort of went through 
we built the business to a really good size. And then mm. as the internet started to happen in the 90s, we really latched right onto that mm. sort of transition to a brand and web company and then attracted investors and really scaled up to you know, eight, nine offices, 500 plus people. And we were on that the IPO track. Mm. And when the dot com explosion happened, so that was another like that was like going to business school too, just dealing with scaling way up and then scaling back down, and the different sort of business metrics that mattered and how they shifted from growth, 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 growth to profits, 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 profits. Yeah. So that was education. What advice do you have for the designers who are listening who want to? We want a path like yours. You advise them to go to business school, to start a business, or like how I know every path is unique. What advice would you give them? Well, I mean, if if somebody, most designers don't want to go to business school. You know, that mm. it's, it's sort of a rare person that would want to, and then come back to having a very design centric job. However, if somebody does have that inclination, I would say go for it because you'll learn a lot, yeah. and you'll come back sort of able to run and grow business and also help your clients more, you know, mm -hmm. but otherwise, if you, you know, if you're starting a business or you're, you know, founding a business, I guess, find some really good financial advisors that you, to help you understand how do we make money? Because mm -hmm. if, you, if you're not making money, your business is in trouble. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be the ultimate driving force in your life, mm -hmm. but it is fuel. And so understand how the engine works so that you can tend to that while you're tending to design, which may be, you know, where your passion really lies. Mm. I, I'm sort of equally interested in both. Mm. So it works for me and that education worked. And then I've been part of the, you know, our company was acquired by Omnicom, which is one of the world's largest marketing services holding companies. Mm. And so now I've been part of Omnicom for over 20 years. And that's a very financially driven organization. So they mm -hmm. celebrate creativity. They are attracted to and purchase companies that are super strong in that domain. But then you, they really do impose a lot of financial discipline on you. So mm -hmm. for me, that's also been you know hugely educational. So the, the business that I run today with my partner, David Sariri, is such a phenomenally well-run business mm. in line with their brand purpose, which was to help people on a path to a healthier life. Mm. And so that's really a great company. They're they're really purpose driven. They're you know really a great culture up there. They're based in Rhode Island, but of course mm. they're all over the country. How did you land them? CVS. I mean, this has got to be like such a huge I mean, they're such a I mean, right now they're like over three hundred billion dollars in revenue. They have like almost like ten thousand stores yeah. in, in the yeah, u.s yeah i think you know on the fortune 100 list they're in the top five they're, they're yeah we had to you know we had to pitch it was competitive and we did a lot of research about them about the different businesses that make up cvs health because they're very different businesses you obviously got the pharmacies but you also have these benefits pharmacy benefits yep. business is a really big business for them they have the minute clinics they actually treat more patients in the United States than any hospital system. Wow. And they have this, you know, the specialty, specialty drug business where 
These are very expensive drugs for very particular diseases, and there's enormous support that comes with the drug prescription. So there's they have a lot of really interesting parts of the business. So we had to get very smart on that yeah. and present a smart point of view about how all of that could be harmonized to be one brand, mm. you know, called CVS Health, and how we would design that program and who yeah. we would snap it with, et cetera. They thought, yeah, this is going to be the best firm. You know, we're also, Siegel and Gale is, you know, we're a philosophically driven company around this notion of simplicity mm. that our founder, Alan Siegel, landed on, you know, a long time ago in the 70s. Yeah. And so we really bring that lens to bear on our approach to problems. So, mm. and that was really appealing to them because it was a pretty complicated challenge to harmonize all of that. What did you do for CVS? Because before they were called Caremark, right? Like, yeah. did you come up with the CVS health name and the logo? And like, what did that process look like? Yeah, they were called CVS Caremark because CVS had purchased Caremark some years before. And Caremark was a pharmacy benefits company. They had, when they engaged us, they internally had decided to take tobacco off the shelves. They had a purpose, which was helping people on their path to a healthier life. And they had a CEO that was really committed to that and the whole place was. So they came to that decision. And, you know, that was $2 billion in sales that they walked away from. Cigarette sales. Yes. Wow. Tobacco, tobacco sales. Oh my gosh. Something on the order of like $500 million in profit that they said, we're going to just, we're going to abandon that. And that took a lot of courage. And so they had decided to do that. They had provisionally decided to change the name from CVS Caremark to CVS Health. They asked us to validate that and to come up wow. with some options just to consider, but they were well on their way to that. And that was a great move. So we then helped refine their strategic brand platform. We designed their logo, their new identity, mm. CVS Health with the heart, and really showed how that, that could be applied. At the time, they wanted to use that just at the parent company level, not in the stores. Okay. And so the stores were going to continue to be CVS and just with the big, bold Helvetica type. And yep. that was it. Once we designed the system and the world responded to it, Bond, with such enthusiasm, then the folks running the retail organization said, hey, we want that. We want to mm. use it. So then- it got pulled down into the retail stores and, you know, applied to signage. And we thought that could happen. So when we designed that, one of the things we knew was that replacing the signage on the CVS stores to take all that, if we had changed that type, the, the, the CVS logo type plus added the heart, mm -hmm. they would tear all that CVS lettering off of buildings repair the building, manufacture new signs like that, reinstall yeah. them for over 5,000 locations. And every location is multiple signs. So wow. that was like a hundred, literally a hundred million dollar change. What? Wow. So we designed that logo. So if it got pulled down to the retail, all they'd have to do is add the heart. They could leave uh, everything else. That was massive. Yeah. Um, and so that's what they did. And then, then it got pulled inside the store in many, many different places and then applied to the other businesses as well. And just the whole organization embraced it. And, and then we just had to continue to build out the system to ensure it was really robust. And then, then we started looking at 
really the sort of experience of going to CVS and mm-hmm. being a patient in a clinic and how CVS could, you know, help patients in a more profound and intuitive way for them and and build the business at the same time. So that then led to something called the Health Hub, which is a whole, you know, sort of next level minute clinic and a lot of a lot of other really interesting things. What a great project and, and great clients. How do you go about doing some of that design research? Is it like direct observation or like, and, and I guess what metrics do you use to know that your design efforts work? Because I, I remember being a little bit confused. I was like, what is going on with CVS? They're not selling cigarettes or becoming a healthcare company. And that was like confusing to me. But now it's like, oh yeah, like I've gotten care at CVS. I've like, it's easier for me to get my covid vaccine shots over there and get covid testing than actually going to my own hospital because i live closer to a cvs i mean it is now it's just part of my healthcare experience yeah and it happened it seemed like it just happened so seamlessly that program was rolled out really well so um there's a lot of different components to that to how that brand shows up i mean there's the words and pictures of logos and advertisements but there's also the tools and the kind of service you get and what's it like to interact with their people. And also, you know, how do they live the brand internally and the way they engage each other? So, you know, as you tackle those different parts of how a brand manifests, there's different ways that you get confident that you're making the right move. And sometimes it's quantitative research, sometimes it's qualitative research. It's always looking at the competitive set you know, it's a stakeholder first exercise. You know, I had read recently that someone said, you know, the the best way to create, you know, great brand experiences is you begin by meeting the customer or the stakeholder. And then from that interaction and what they need, you walk backwards. As you design things, you're always Mm. your eye on that, on that, that stakeholder. And I I really like that image. And that, that is what you have to do. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, then we do a lot of work in the health sector. I mean, CVS is a massive program, and then they they purchased Aetna, which, yep. interestingly, we had done the Aetna brand and identity. Oh, uh, get out. And they're so, like one of the largest insurers in the yeah. country, right? They're like top five or something like that, I think. Very large health insurers. So then CVS bought them, and that extended the CVS role in the healthcare value chain to really they're kind of a, they're a company of, of one, you know, if you think mm. of from payer mm. of one end to the clinics at the other end, there's so many other ways that people can manage their health. Yeah. And so yeah, I think they just bought right Signify, which is a home healthcare provider and Oak Street Health, which is primary care services. So they almost have the whole vertical stack. They just like don't own hospitals now. Or maybe yet, <laughs> you know, like. Well, I mean, they have Minute Clinic that treats more patients than any hospital. Yeah. That in the health hub, exactly. So that's an interesting phenomenon you see across a number of insurers where they're getting into care mm. because it's what their customers need. It's yeah, it's a way to enable them to be healthy, and it's also better for the insurance company, obviously. So rather than leave it to third parties to make that happen or to, you know, people that are struggling with maintaining their own health, they're saying, all right, you know, it's better for everybody if we just take an active hand there. Yeah. So 
that's what's kind of interesting in the healthcare arena, how some of the pillars are supporting more of the whole structure, right? I mean, you could probably teach a class on healthcare economics because you have to understand how all these different components work with each other with this large type of system. Do you you have any other examples of how you applied some of your simplicity design principles in the healthcare space? Well, yeah. I mean, we start there, Bon, all the time. And so, I mean, just recently, I was thinking about in advance of our conversation today, you know, we we helped Bristol-Myers Squibb rebrand. They made the largest acquisition in pharmaceutical history when they bought the biotech company Celgene a couple of years ago. Oh, I didn't know. Wow. And was a sort of a game changer for Bristol-Myers Squibb. And the CEO, Giovanni Caforio, who's you know, an amazing person, thought this is a moment where we really need the world to take a fresh look at us. This has changed who we are. Mm. And that's a moment to re-examine a brand. And so to help them figure out the story of these two organizations together inside yeah. why it made sense is an exercise in simplicity. So that can be to name the assignment. What are we trying to solve for here to... Yeah detangling a portfolio of products or business units that rather than mash them all together, say, okay, which ones fit together? How do we organize them in a way that's navigable mm. to, you know, creating a, an identity system that represents the world accurately and is easy and simple to implement for the for our client and also for all their other agencies that work with them. So the whole thing is an exercise in simplicity mm. or simplification. I really love it because it gives you a place to start mm. with any assignment, no matter what shape and size it is. Mm. Let, let's simplify this mm. and then start from there. Do you have to use a different like design strategy with healthcare companies or like pharma companies or health systems compared to non-healthcare companies? Or is it are there some nuances there or is it kind of like the same same approach? I mean, there's some nuances. In terms of a program, it's going to be more alike than different, but there are some unique characteristics. One is, you know, purpose and mission is a huge part of any Mm. brand story, you know. Mm. And in the healthcare arena, you know, that those purposes, their purpose and mission and reason for getting up and going to work every day is very, very noble, you know, Mm. and altruistic, let's say. So that informs the story in a big mm-hmm. way. It informs how they show up and the new areas they expand into and things like that. And so it makes them very rich projects to work on because mm-hmm. of that. You know, we work with other companies too that are different than that, you know, that are also really fascinating, but they might be an industrial company also mm-hmm. that has a, a real purpose, but it's, it's slight, it has a different twist to it that you're trying to capture. So it is kind of unique in in that domain. I want to have your title of being a chief creative officer. I love that. I think every health system should have a chief creative officer. And how would you describe the value of creativity in in business? I think, you know, in, in this context, you know, creativity is imagination, Bon. It's imagining 
what could happen, what could take place, mm. you know, how in the future for this organization. You know, we were talking earlier and you, you said you, you're imagining the sort of Tesla of a healthcare vehicle, right? Yeah. That's creativity, but that, you know, but it's imagination saying, wow, what if it was like this? And you know what? It could be like that. And so it's really important to bring that kind of thinking to the programs we undertake and, and any program in business because you're you're imagining a future. And so mm -hmm. how, how can you show up in the most compelling way? So that that's where I think creativity matters. And it, and it can, it, it happens in every domain, not just yeah. in marketing or sales, you know? Mm. Except for healthcare. <laughs> like, I think I'm going to criticize my field is I think we undervalue the role of creativity, right? There's like, there's no chief creative officer for health systems, but what we do is important. We're always imagining the future of health. You know, we're always looking like 10, 20 years out of, you know, how we're going to think of how like AI or, you know, chat GPT is going to change the experience for clinicians and for patients. And so we always have to imagine the future, but I think we undervalue how important it is to apply our creativity to that. I mean, one place where I see is, is in, in many, let's say hospital systems, there's a sort of a chief experience officer. Yeah. Yeah. That role has been gaining some popularity. And that's a role that requires imagination. So, or, and creativity where you really are putting your, putting yourself in the persona of a patient or a patient's family or a physician or a nurse or a caregiver who is in a really fraught moments, right? Mm -hmm. What is causing anxiety and what is enabling success or, or the outcomes you want? And so I think that's a place in hospital systems where there's a real role for creativity. You know, also partnerships. Who do we partner with it is mm -hmm. a, another place where that can really happen. And that's not only for hospitals, but that's for pharma companies and universities. And, and mm -hmm. things. Uh, so the, I think there's a lot of places where imagination and creativity are success, huge success factors. And I also think design, you know, design as we understand it also matters and is acknowledged to matter. The way that it can enable messaging and mm -hmm. understanding and facilitate navigation and attract the right people. The evidence is out there that design pays. Yeah. You can look at a company like Apple. Apple is a design. Yeah. You know, people become passionate defenders, you know, and advocates for Apple because they just, they love everything about it. They love the devices, the way they feel, the way they work, the way they're detailed, the way that the interface unifies all these very different devices and form factors. Mm. So I, I think on the business side, there's a, a much broader acknowledgement that whatever we do has to be very well designed. Yeah. I love that. I've been advocating for increasing or elevating the role of, of design in healthcare. I mean, I wrote a book with a graphic designer, Ellen Lupton, called Health Design Thinking. And are people in the healthcare space, like health systems, do you have to convince them about the role of design or do you feel like they're getting it more these days? Because I often find that design is not understood by administrators and the people in leadership in health systems. 
I think that's right. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different roles in these organizations, right? There's a lot of left brain types, you know, yeah. very quantitatively driven. And, and, you know, the truth is they're not even thinking about design. I think often it's not that they've thought deeply about it and reject it. Uh-huh. And it's just not, it's not what they're thinking about. They're it's thinking, not part of the conversation. I no. feel. So, yeah. you know, they're, if suddenly they can have an eye-opening moment where somebody points out an experience they just had or a tool they just used or something that just happened as being really well-designed or very poorly designed, and then they'll sit back and say, oh, yeah, that actually made a difference. Yeah. But there's a growing group of people who recognize it does matter, mm. I think. Personally, how do you keep your creative juices flowing, running this global firm and it's so busy? Well, one is I talked about the people that are at Siegel and Gale. They're really, they keep my juices flowing. I love collaborating with them or watching them work or just being around them. And it's very stimulating. And, you know, I've worked there a long time and a lot of our people have. So there's a lot of really nice working relationships where people are, you know, brainstorming, throwing ideas out and stuff like that. So that, just the process of mm. Being around people like that and involved in interesting projects keeps you going. The other, you know, I talked about loving our, our clients or, you know, really getting passionate about what we're trying to solve. That if you lean into something, it just makes it more interesting. Mm. So that that's really big. And, and I, I'm a very curious person. I watch what's happening out in the world. I, I really admire a lot of things that a lot of different people are doing and they get me really jazzed up to sort of build on those ideas, things like that. You know, I, I read a lot, and, you know, and on the personal side, I'm really into cooking and chefing, you know, so. Yeah, um, I, I heard you're, you're an avid chef. I, I like that. My, and we have a bunch of them in my family. My, a couple of my daughters are really into it. And so I, I really like, you know, that whole process of trying to create something that we haven't before. And, yeah. and, the, and with that also very immediate payoff. Yeah. And I love sometimes the design constraints of cooking of like, hey, I'm just going to cook what's in my fridge. I get a lot of inspirations from chefs. Oh, yeah. I just I just interviewed Dan Barber a few weeks ago. So that's going to drop probably, I think, after this episode. So oh. he's such a creative guy. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple questions, ending questions here. So if one of our listeners were to visit you, where would you take them out to eat? And you said you're a voracious reader. Can you recommend a favorite book that you've read recently? Um, okay. So we recently moved our office in Manhattan. We actually moved a bunch of offices during the pandemic, you know, because we went hybrid. Uh -huh. We moved our Manhattan office to Soho in New York. And oh, yeah. I founded my company, my first company years and years ago. We, our office was in was in Soho. So it's really kind of cool to be back there again. And there was a restaurant I used to go to back then. This was a long time ago, Bond, called Omen. And it's on, I think, Thompson Street, right in the middle of Soho. It's a Japanese restaurant. It's a little tiny place, easy to miss. The interior is feels like it's from the countryside in Japan. Oh, cool. Omen, for those that don't know, is a particular kind of soup, Japanese soup that is very thick rice noodles. And it comes with, with a really lovely broth. The noodles are in the broth and you get a side plate of all these different vegetables mm. and like toasted sesame seed and seaweed and things like that. And you, and you sort of build the soup, eat the soup, put in more vegetables. And the whole thing is kind of a real experience. 
I love that. Might take people there. Although, I mean, I have so many great favorite restaurants, you know, in New York. But that's lately. And, oh man, it's it's really striking my 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 hard chords. Yeah, I love that. Check it out, man. Check it out. I, I will. We'll put a link to that restaurant in the show notes as well. What about a book that you've read recently that you enjoyed and want to recommend to our listeners? Okay, so this is a, this is a really kind of a mind blowing book. It's called The Last Days of Night. Um, last Days of Nights. The Last okay. Days of Night. It's by an author named Graham Moore. And this book is the story of a, of a sort of battle royale between Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse. <laughs> that is amazing. That's so yeah. cool. So, and Nikola Tesla plays as a meaningful character in it too, as is Alexander Graham Bell. So the story is, you know, and this was sort of an eye-opener for me, but then I did research and I found it to be true. Thomas Edison is an interesting character. So he was, you know, he's credited as like one of America's greatest inventors. What he really should also be credited as is perhaps America's first patent troll. So he, you know, sort of raided and created and patented thousands of innovations that other people actually had invented, but he then mm. the ownership to them and then would sue people. At any given time, this guy would have 200 lawsuits going on. Oh my gosh. So somebody else invented the light bulb. Thomas Edison then started to build on it. And his way of inventing was just like brute force. He'd just have a whole bunch of people just doing shit. That, that's how that famous saying of his, you know, if my experiment doesn't work 10,000 times, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I discovered 10,000 ways something doesn't work. That was making a silk purse out of a sow's ear. <laughs> and Nikola Tesla was one of his scientists that he was having work like that. And Tesla just couldn't do it, you know, because uh-huh. uh-huh. George Westinghouse also sort of improved this invention of the light bulb. He actually built the best light bulb out there. Mm. Edison then filed suits at him to try to sort of tie them all up. So that that backstory is really interesting. Meanwhile, the first light bulbs ran on DC current, direct current, uh-huh. which meant that they, they didn't cast much of a light and they had to be very close to the energy source. And so there was a huge battle to figure out AC current. And this is where Nikola Tesla came in. He figured mm. that out. And Alexander Graham Bell, I'm sorry, I keep mixing them up. The reason Bell is in it is because he invented the telephone, obviously, and Edison sued the pants off of him, but he won the lawsuit. And at one point, George Westinghouse goes to Bell for advice in this, this legal battle. Anyway, this is a fascinating book with a lot of real characters. that It's worth a read. It's a quick, it's, it's an easy read, too. Well, I got some summer reading and I got a nice place to go to in New York City when I'm when I'm there. Definitely. Yeah. Also, and and, and the, when you think when you think about inventions and the impact of inventions, think about that for a second. Before the light bulb, you know, people's days, they ended at sunset. Yeah. You're you have candles or gas light and whale oil and like stuff like that. And and the quality of light was so poor and suddenly you know, over time, the world is illuminated. Yeah. Think about the impact of that on people's lives. That's massive. Yeah. 
Well, I know you're busy. It's Friday. I want to let you get to your weekend. I appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show, Howard. You bet, man. I'm sorry to go on and on about that book, but you asked. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you can find Howard on Twitter at H-O-W-A-R-D-B-E-L-K. Design Lab is produced by Rob Pugisi, editing by Fernando Carreros. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.